Become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your RPG treasure trove. I'm your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and thank you for joining us this evening here at Valor Studios. For those of you joining us for the first time, Valor Studios is a tabletop role-playing content company, and we love sharing our stories with the world. For those of you joining us live here on Twitch, uh, definitely give us a follow so that you know when we're live, both for Rolling Bones and for Axion, the great new... Uh, steampunk space opera run by the incomparable Cheyenne Wright here on Valor Studios. And if you want to support any of the work that we're doing here further, definitely give us that subscribe, and we appreciate every time that happens. If you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and turn on notifications. Uh, the algorithm has just been uh, putting people in a chokehold recently, so we really uh, appreciate those of you who've stuck with us through that, and uh, you know we hope that. You guys will just continue to hit that subscribe button, continue to turn on those notifications so you know when we've got stuff going on here at Valor Studios. And also, we want to thank the audio listeners. You guys have been supporting us from the very beginning, and I couldn't do it without your uh, support for the show in that medium. You can find links to our Twitter and Discord, our YouTube channel, and all kinds of other things that we have going on over here in the chat as we're having the conversation. And we'll also be directing you towards links for our guest tonight. So without further ado, uh, let me introduce everyone to uh, one of the most interesting guys I've ever had on Rolling Bones. Last time we had a conversation, it took some you know really cool, interesting twists and turns. He is the, uh, the mind behind Autark. He created this amazing... Uh, big boy here, Ascendant RPG. He is on here to talk tonight about Buy This Axe, which is a resource for running dwarves in your fantasy games. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Rolling Bones, Alexander Macris. Welcome back, Alex. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me back on the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, like I said, last time we talked, uh, just we covered so much interesting and unique ground. And when I saw that you had this book coming out that was completely dedicated to dwarves, I knew I had to bring you back on. Everybody loves dwarves. That's been the biggest surprise of 2020, 20, 2022, right? Everybody loves dwarves. <laughs> um, I, I actually kind of blundered into this book, not realizing um, that... You know, apparently every every man, every gamer in America secretly had grown a beard and a pot belly and was ready to embrace the dwarf lifestyle. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, just to kind of kick things off here, to let everyone know what precisely by this axe is, 
Uh, can you just give us a, a quick rundown of, you know, everything that this uh, this book uh, purports to be and, and aims to be? Sure, sure. So it's a source book. It's designed for my role-playing game, which is Adventure Con- Conquer King System. It's fully compatible with any of the old-school Renaissance D20 RPGs that are built on a similar chassis. So Labyrinth Lord, Old School Essentials, Lamentations of the Flame Princess, Sword and Wizardry, etc. Uh, and it aims to be a comprehensive source book for uh, expanding dwarves in your campaign setting. So it's got uh, culture, history, lore of dwarves. It's got new dwarven character classes. It's got a new type of dwarven magic called earth forging. It's got uh, steampunk dwarves who can build automatons. It's got rules for dwarven mining. It's got rules for dwarven vaults and domains. And it's got rules for dwarven mu- uh, mushroom farming including weird things like experimental mushroom brews, etc. So it's uh, it covers really all of the dwarven tropes in a fun way, ties it all into a lot of great fluff and lore, and um, is pretty broadly usable with uh, OSR games. So hopefully people will, uh, will dig it when they get their hands on it. Absolutely. And one thing that kind of immediately sold me on this book, and I'm going to make a statement here, and you know, I, I kind of want you to sound off whether you agree or disagree with me here. Dwarves are a staple of medieval fantasy. They've kind of always been there. They're a key part of so many different stories. They're one of the must-include demi-human races whenever it comes to any kind of fantasy. But there's not a lot of attention actually paid to what dwarves are. They're just grumpy rock people who are short. That's right. That's right. They they seem to almost get treated like um, like an afterthought. Uh, you know, oh, well, we have to have dwarves and we'll give them Scottish accents and battle axes and that's about it. And I, I wanted to really make them something more than that. Like I, I took the approach that dwarves were a separate species. So in a sense, you could think of this book as saying that dwarves are like Wookiees. Uh, you know, they have their own physiology. They have their own psychology their own lifespan, reproductive habits. They're not human beings. And so the, the, the design method I took was to identify the tropes of dwarves and then try and figure out a justification physiologically, culturally, for why those tropes would exist and then try and weave it together into a comprehensive whole. So I had a lot of fun with that because you, you know the, the, the tropes for dwarves lend themselves to all sorts of um, hilarity when you try and turn it into a world-building exercise. And I just leaned into it the whole way. Yeah, I, I've also been thinking a lot about dwarves recently because I'm still working back and forth on several different projects, but one of them is Nighthaven, my campaign setting. Mm-hmm. And part of what I wanted to do with Nighthaven was give dwarves something kind of cool and unique. <clears throat> and so I've been thinking about different ways to differentiate dwarves and, and more flesh out dwarves and really make them essential to the history of the world that Nighthaven exists in. Because, again, going back to other, you know, fantasy settings, it's always like the elves are the old race. They're the ones who kind of set everything up, and then the humans and dwarves and maybe hobbits or halflings just kind of showed up one day. Right, right. That's right. All that dates all the way back to Tolkien, that trope. Mm-hmm. So uh, the way I handled it in, in uh, By the Sacks, the Cyclopedia of Dwarven Civilization, is 
um, the dwarves and elves were both uh, sort of antediluvian ancient races, and they encounter each other before they ever encounter human beings. And so the rivalry between dwarves and elves goes back thousands and thousands of years, long before um, either of them was interacting. And a lot of the um, dwarven culture is thus set up in a compare contrast with elven culture. Because, you know, they're both long-lived, but the big difference is that the elves are long-lived and ageless, whereas the dwarves age, even though they're long-lived. And so they end up as a society of old men. And, uh, you know, a society of the old is much more traditional-focused. It's more conservative. You know, um, it's more concerned about lineage. Uh, you know, the elves are essentially endless 20-somethings, you know, who always have more time, always feel good, are always energetic and peppy. Um, and the contrast of those two gives a lot of play space to play with. And then the humans almost roll in, you know, to both races as kind of this ephemeral afterthought. And um, the uh, there's there's a sense of... The, the book is written in character from the point of view of a sage in the world who's a human embedded as an anthropologist studying the dwarves. And um, and I, I wrote him as if he was like this kind of smug Victorian anthropologist studying a primitive people. So he's kind of being smug about the dwarves, but then the dwarves are also being kind of smug to him in ways that he doesn't understand. So as you're reading, as you're reading uh, the book, there's like lots of, you know, read between the lines hilarity going on. Um, Hopefully, hopefully it addresses that problem of dwarves just kind of seeming like they come out of nowhere and they're just, you know, Scottish fat men. And mm -hmm. Now, you've mentioned this a couple times, and so I have to ask, uh, are dwarves Scottish? Do, do you think dwarves are necessarily Scottish or do you think they coincide better with maybe a, a different people group? No, they're definitely not Scottish. Um, so the... The way I did it, I actually decided there were two different cultures of dwarves. So there's one dwarven species, but, you know, just like our human species has different cultures, the dwarves have different cultures. And so I set them up as having a northern and a southern culture, where the northern dwarves are more akin to your kind of um, Viking Scottish dwarves that some people like. And then the southern dwarves are more like your steampunk dwarves um, that other people prefer. So depending on what you want to lean into, you can go either way. Um, the only concession I made to Scottishness was the inclusion of dwarven bagpipes, but I felt like a bagpipe is such a um, mechanical uh, musical instrument that has such like a growl, like a growly sound. Mm -hmm. I felt like it was just really appropriate for dwarves, even though I didn't otherwise lean into the Scottishness. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. I mean, there really is, and I didn't even think about this until you said it, but there there is kind of an earthy quality to bagpipes, and with dwarves being essentially people of stone, mm -hmm. their musical cultures would then necessarily have to have some kind of more earthy element. I don't think they're going to be creating a lot of woodwind instruments or anything like that. Their Their music is going to be more rumbling, their singing is probably more guttural, and probably a lot of heavy percussion and bagpipes. Right. So have you ever heard Mongolian throat singing? Yes. Were they, were they able to have two separate vocal cords running at once, the lower vestibular folds and then the upper? And so it's like coming out almost in two tones, and one of them is this... Mm -hmm. So I decided that that's how dwarves sing. So they always... they All dwarven singing is like dwarven throat singing. Mm -hmm. Then the bagpipe is, is, interestingly enough, I stumbled upon this, bagpipe is an instrument 
that can do the same thing. It can play two tones at once. It can play a bass line tone and then it can play a, a melody tone. And so I decided the dwarves love the bagpipe because it's the only instrument that can accompany dwarven throat singing. So that was my. So it's exactly it's that sort of very. So I, whenever I'm writing, I listen to this Mongolian rock band called The Who that uh, does awesome throat singing. Highly recommended. And and already in chat, uh, Zevon45 here is, is saying, uh, if you like Mongolian throat singing, check out The Who. Yes, my brother with you. Mm-hmm. And and it looks like Gregory also has heard of The Who. So I'm the not cool one here. Basically, imagine Mongol step archers, but instead of riding on horses, they ride on awesome Harley Davidson motorcycles across the step. And instead of having bow and arrow, they have like awesome shredded guitars. That's The Who. Okay, I'm going to have to listen to The Who now. Yeah, it's like, you know, Elvis Presley is the king and they're the con. It's just fantastic. Nice. I like that. I like that. See, we, I like discovering new things and, and new <laughs> ways to enjoy genres of music that I already like. So, you know, like metal, I, I liked metal. And then someone was like, you need to check out Sabaton. And I started oh, listening Sabaton's to Sabaton. Oh, Sabaton's so awesome. Yeah. yeah. And, and now we have The Who. Yes, they're both on my playlist for sure. Absolutely. So, yeah, so that's Dwarven music inspired by, and actually Dwarven, uh, I, I let the Dwarven language be a little bit inspired by the Mongolian language as well, which had all sorts of really funny uh, characteristics to it that I thought would work well for Dwarven. So there's a whole Dwarven constructed language in the book that's inspired by basically uh, Germanic vocabulary mixed with Mongolian grammar. So it's, um, it's a bit of a nutcase language. Mm-hmm. Now we've... Uh... We've brought up the subject of metal at this point. So um, are you familiar with Udo Dirkschneider, the former lead singer of Accept? I am not familiar with Udo Dirkschneider, no, although his name is awesome. Okay. So he he was the original frontman for Accept. Uh, for anyone unfamiliar with Accept, they were a great German metal band, uh, popular in the 80s. Uh, if you've heard the song Balls to the Walls, that's Accept. Uh, Midnight Mover is also Accept. Uh, just as we're talking about dwarves, and I'll I'll send you a, a link here. When I think of dwarves in real life, this is the man who I think of, Udo Dirkschneider. <laughs> um, is that is that a compliment to him, or is that a diss to him? I think it's a compliment. I mean, he he is he is diminutive in stature, and he's very stocky. Hmm. But he has this very, like, froggy German voice. Right, right. And his band is famous for, like, dressing in combat gear and singing a lot of, you know, very guttural German-sounding songs. So, uh, for some reason, he's just stuck in my head as, like, even though he doesn't have a beard, which I guess is his only... uh, only mark against him being a dwarf, but he's always like stuck out in my head as th- this is what like a dwarf in real life would be like. Oh yeah, I just saw the picture you threw up there. He he definitely looks like a dwarf. Yep. Udo Dirk Schneider. Yep. He looks like a poor dwarf who's had his beard shorn because of committing some terrible crime. Maybe maybe the clan didn't like his music, you know, and so they shaved off his beard. He's been insufficient number of bagpipes. He's been exiled. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, one thing that I, I wanted to ask about, and again, this this is 
I had this idea about dwarves and I wanted to bounce it off of you. Hit me. I think, um, so I, I've been very heavily inspired in my gaming by like ancient Petra and the, the cities that they built into the sides of mountains. Yep, the rock-cut architecture, yes. And one thing that I did in uh, Nighthaven is the dwarves build what I call Petro cities. So mm-hmm. they've settled the mountains by carving their cities into it. Is that something you think dwarves would do? Like, is that a cool notion for dwarves to have their cities be you know, built in that way? 100%. That's exactly how we did it in By the Axe. So they do rock-cut architecture uh, inspired by Petra and as well as the other rock-cut uh, rock stuff that you find in uh, the Near East and India. And um, and I actually, I elaborated a, a whole section. There's a, a, a whole section of the chapter devoted to it. I talk about how they also um, do all their farming up in the mountains where it's hidden. So it's all terraced farms and hidden pastures. So that the humans never see dwarves farming. They just, you know, they they just see these cities and they're like, well, how do they eat? Where do they get their food? And it's because it's all happening hidden up on the slopes, um, with you know, secret secret passes down into the cut the rock cut cities. So yeah, totally. Petra is Petra is the dwarfiest city ever made. Absolutely. Maybe that Turkish city in Cappadocia that's also underground. That's pretty dwarfish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you've mentioned uh, dwarven agriculture, so another point that we have to discuss here, uh, when it comes to dwarves that, you know, you, you have brought forward with this particular project that I think is cool is mycoculture. Yes. We don't... Yes. Again, this is another thing. We think about mushrooms, for one, kind of like being their own thing, and in some cases, their own race. But I feel like a lot of people more associate mushrooms with elves or with, you know, druids or even gnomes. But the fact of the matter is, if dwarves are, again, people of rock, like we've talked about them being, so much of their uh, harvesting of, of, you know, plants will be fungus. Mm-hmm. So t- talk a little bit about mycoculture and the, the, the role it plays in, in this book. So there's a whole chapter on it. Um, it's a little bit, it's, uh, it's divided into three sections. So first is um, mushroom farming, which explains the processes of how the dwarves do mushroom farming and the game mechanics of that, if you want to run a mushroom farm in the game. Um, and to, do, to write that section, I actually learned how to do a mushroom farm. I bought a bunch of books on mushroom farming and, and learned all about that. It was kind of interesting. Um, then the second section is on dwarven brewing. And the idea is that the dwarven, what makes dwarven beer so potent is that they mix in weird psychedelic mushrooms into the beer to have different effects. And so I did a bunch of research into the different um, alleged medicinal or psychedelic effects of many different varietals of mushrooms to make up a bunch of different dwarven brews. And then finally, there's a section on experimental mushroom farming, which is the idea of what if you took the weird varietals you're using in your dwarven beer, and then you try to apply those as fertilizer to your mushroom crops to try and make really weird crops. And so you can you can experiment with mushroom farming and accidentally turn everyone into a mushroom zombie or trigger a green slime outbreak or things like that. But you can also create like a race of super tough dwarves that are inured to pain or you know they're more heavily muscled because they're getting all sorts of growth hormone or things like that. So um it it's definitely it gets into the gonzo in that chapter but i had a really good time with it and logistically speaking if you're going to live in the mountains in caves mushroom farming is what you would do 
mean, it, it just is what you would do. You just take dead things, chop down, you know, the trees that you're cutting down anyway to use for charcoal and things like that. You just take those trees, the charcoal, you, you throw it into caves. You don't need light, you just need water. You redirect the water from mountain aquifers or mountain streams. And um, voila, you get food. Absolutely. And and this is, if, if I may take a minute to just kind of praise you uh, here on the show. Take as much time as you need. <laughs> this is why, one, I wanted to have you on to talk about this, but two, why I was immediately sold on Alex McCreese doing a dwarf book. Because even just, like from reading Ascendant, just the, the book here, and the conversation that we had about how the government-sanctioned superheroes would have to be a part of the Coast Guard to get around Posse Comitat. That was my favorite part of our conversation, was how superheroes would have to join the Coast Guard to be law enforcement without violating Posse Comitates. Exactly. But the, the level of thought that you put into your books and the amount of research that you do into, okay... If it's going to work this way, how does it work this way? What what goes into making this thing work? It It's almost like you build these intricate clocks in your mm -hmm. books. And that's something that I really appreciate about the work that you that you do. I think that's my sweet spot as a designer, kind of like these very clockwork is a good example, you know, very clockwork mechanisms that uh, run smoothly. Um, you know, uh, I think a lot of other people um, tend to take a more narrative focus in their game design. And, um, you know, they aim, you know, kind of aim, how, how does this feel? And I tend to take a very mathematical focus to say, how does it all integrate together? How does it balance? How does the probability work? Um, how does the mechanical flow work? And then after I've got that, then I go and I kind of tweak a little bit for feel around the edges. Um, so I think the, you know, the, the downside to my approach is you end up with a book like Ascendant, which is, you know, this thick. And some people will just look at that book and say, I will never play this game. Um, but then for other people, they look at that book and they're like, this is literally the game I've waited my whole life to play and it has everything. So, you know, teach their own. But yeah, that's definitely like kind of a, a clockwork integrated mechanism is how I roll. Definitely how I design. Absolutely. And and one thing that I think is cool about this, uh, even though it's intricate and it's detailed, uh, it's designed for, you know, play like with OSR and, uh, you know, like BX clones. Uh, and I think a lot of companies that make content for BX, for OSR stuff, it's a, it's a lot of very kind of stripped down content. It's a lot mm -hmm. of... Uh, all killer, no filler, a lot of that kind of stuff. Right. right. And for those of us who like that, but also want to know, well, why does this work that way? I think you're providing something that, that gives people who want that kind of lighter rule set of a BX, of an OSR game, but still want those kind of juicy details of, okay, it's, you know, there's more to it than just what you're seeing on the surface here. So I, I appreciate that as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a difference in approach. It's almost a, um, uh, you know, like a, a photorealistic versus an impressionist design, right? Like a lot of, I think, what comes out in the art punk scene is very impressionistic. They kind of paint a broad picture and there's a cool vibe to it. But if you, if you dig down and you try and figure out, well, how does this actually make sense? How does it fit together? 
that's not really what they're focused on. They just want you to kind of have a have a vibe as you play and then you move on to something else. Because what I write tends to be designed for really long-term play. And I don't think depth has to mean slow. I don't think depth has to mean complex. Um, and in fact, you know, acts as the combat play is much faster than, for instance, fifth edition combat. Ascendant combat plays really fast. Um, you know, so I don't think depth needs to mean slowness of play. It just needs to mean uh, a certain sense of verisimilitude and how it all fits together. And to answer the question in chat here, uh, BX, I, I should have explained that before I, I threw that term out there. BX is basic expert. Mm-hmm. It's often abbreviated as B slash X, and that just refers to uh, D&D before what would be considered 1E D&D. So the original basic and original expert sets right. is, is BX. Yeah, at the time, they were the best-selling products that TSR put out. A lot of people got uh, uh, started playing Dungeons & Dragons with the Red Box um, basic set by Tom Mulvey later. Yeah, and um, and then they reprinted them a little later, and they expanded into the basic expert companion Master Immortal set, which is called BECMI, and they're largely compatible, minor stylistic differences. And um, when I went back in 2008, when I went back to Dungeons & Dragons, um, I went back to BX because that was the game of my childhood and I wanted to recreate that experience. And then Axe grew out of BX rather than growing out of 3.5 or 4th edition or 5th edition. So it's it's sort of like, um, you know, imagine if you, you know, you went back to the ancestor of, of wolves and then you rebred them and came up with a different species, but like, you know, they share an evolutionary lineage. That's kind of the relationship between the current iteration of D&D and my game Axe. But they all, you know, they're all, they're all siblings in a way. Yeah, and that's, if, again, for anyone out there who's unfamiliar with kind of OSR games, it all kind of comes down to that central philosophy of people who grew up playing BX or playing those very early editions of D&D going back to that stuff and then really kind of stripping out the grad student over the top density of of Gygax's writing and making it something that you can pretty easily pick up uh for modern audiences. So a lot of times these games are very quick to learn and they're very deadly and things move very, very fast in them. So it takes away a lot of the slog of kind of modern systems. It takes away some of the, I'm going to sit here and contemplate for 15 minutes what spell I'm going to cast or which of my 16 abilities I'm going to use that you find in like a, a Pathfinder or a D&D 5e. And it's really, you know, you're going to swing your sword, you're going to cast your spell, uh, and you better be careful about, uh, you know, what you're what you're going up against because combat balance not really a thing here, and you're going to have to play smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really different playstyle than I think what a lot of people play nowadays, um, and some people love it. I personally, I love it. You know, that's that's how I enjoy running. Um, I probably am on the uh, more complex side of the spectrum um, of some old school players, you know, others, 
you know, Nave and Black Hack and whatnot. They're they're on the more even more lightweight side. Um, but you know, like an axe, for instance, you know, it's not uncommon that a player will have three or four characters he's controlling. He'll have his primary character and then several henchmen. And every round he's acting three or four times with his different characters. You know, that would be impossible in fifth edition. Like the mm -hmm. thought of trying to have four characters in fifth edition is enough to just make, you know, your head hurt. You're trying to be like, well, what about my reaction action and my bonus, you know, and you're, well, um, yeah, so it's just a different, it's a different beast. And the consequences are a lot steeper, as he said. So, you, you know, you get, um, you know, characters get massacred, parties get wiped out, people get brutalized, and um, there's no guarantees of, you know, making it to maximum level. Nobody, nobody builds out their character to max level in, a, in an old school game. You know, you're, you're lucky to make it to second level. Hmm. Now, because last time we talked so much about Ascendant, I don't think we spent a whole lot of time talking about Axe. So let's kind of go back to, to Axe as a system itself. And when it comes to going back to, to the BX style of D&D, &D, when you were making Axe, what was it that you wanted to keep and emphasize? And what was it that you wanted to take out or shine up for kind of a, a newer gaming experience? Yeah. So if you look at the very earliest generation of Dungeons and Dragons, it's only one step removed from a war game. And a lot of the earliest parts of Dungeons and Dragons make sense in the context of you're playing the individual soldiers that later will feed into a war game as the captains and the commanders and the rulers. And so um, I came up with this idea of creating a game that would have a complete cycle where you would start off as an adventurer by mid-game, you'd switch into being a general or a commander, and then at the end of the game, you'd be some sort of ruler, king, lord. And there would be full support for every aspect of play. So we wouldn't have 100 pages of tactical combat rules and then one page saying, and this is how you do mass combat. You know, We weren't going to have 50 pages of rules for wilderness exploration and one page for running a castle. So everything would be covered. And rather than be on an endless treadmill, where at first level you fight kobolds and at 20th level you fight demonic kobolds. Like, you know, it would be a game that changed as you advance so that at first level you fight, you fought kobolds. At 14th level, you sent out armies to dispatch the con of all kobolds. It was a very different experience. That involved creating a whole mass combat system, um, a whole system of logistics and war and economics back end, a domain play system and all these things. And that became um, you know, sort of the the secret sauce of Axe. So, you know, it's a it's a world, it's a true world in motion with um, you know everything modeled that you want to have modeled. And you can ignore a lot of it and just run it like BX if you want. But if you really want that experience of going from uh, you know zero to hero to king, there's no other game that does it as well as Axe does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting thing that that you're pointing out there as far as the ultimate goal was to basically become a lord or become a king. Um, because that's something that Matt Colville has talked a lot about in his videos. W one of the things that he really wanted to bring back with his products was that idea of, uh, you know, building a stronghold and, and kind of bringing people into your, uh, your stronghold or your kind of land that you're holding. Uh, but like you said, those early games talked about how, you know, you want to build your fortress, but didn't give a whole lot of kind of depth to it, to how 
you know, the game would continue once you have your uh, your fiefdom and your castle and all that. So the the fact that you decided to kind of emphasize that as much as the individual adventuring, I think, is a, a really cool thing. Well, you know, Matt uh, Matt made a heroic effort to provide a supplement, a stronghold and domains for that. But he was building on the chassis of 5th edition, and 5th edition um, doesn't make sense as a game where you would have um, kings and armies and castles and things. Because 5th edition is a game of 20th level, you know, humans who can uh, teleport at will and, um, you know, cast meteor swarms and things like that. And... Um, if you and if you read what he wrote, he, he admitted that at a certain point he just had to hand wave it and say, We're not going to worry about it. You know, we're just going to pretend that there's going to be castles and armies, even though that doesn't really make sense. So in Axe, I took a to- totally different approach. And, and Axe predated Strongholds and Domains by about three years. We, um, we took a totally different approach, which we went through the game system and tweaked everything to make sure it would lead to a result where armies, castles, kings, etc. made sense. So here's a, here's a silly example that I'll give it. So the traditional fireball spell in um, Dungeons & Dragons had a 20-foot radius, which is to say a 40-foot diameter. So it covered something like 1,200 square feet. Now, if you take 1,200 square feet, you throw that on a battlefield, that's a huge area. That wipes out, you know, dozens of troops in a single spell uh, in a phalanx. Now, and in a dungeon, it's really awkward, right? Like, it's a really big spell for a dungeon. So I said in Axe, Fireball instead will only have a 10-foot radius, so it's a 20-foot diameter. And so the um, square footage is one-fourth what it is on the battlefield. And so now it's powerful, but it has the effect of about a Napoleonic cannon rather than the effect of uh, a napalm drop from an A-10. And so Napoleonic battles uh, show that you can still have massed infantry formations up against cannon, and it's a matter of moving quickly to take out the cannon. Um, you know, or staying out of range or whatnot, but you can't have massed infantry formations with machine guns and napalm, which is what World War One showed. So, um, so fifth edition, realistically speaking, the warfare would look like modern warfare if you actually thought it through and you built out a war game for fifth edition. It would look nothing like the pitch battles we see in history or in Lord of the Rings. I wanted a game that would genuinely have those outcomes, and so I, I designed acts and every aspect of it to give that result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and I don't want to feel like or I don't want it to come off that I'm ragging on fifth edition because I do have a lot of fun when I play 5e. But the ultimate goal of 5e is basically to become the medieval Justice League. It's not that's right. It's not like the kind of sword and sorcery fantasy that I enjoy reading where, uh, you know, Conan eventually does become king but he's still a man that can be killed by a sword or an arrow. Um, exactly, exactly. Because if you if you aren't a man who can still be killed, then you don't need an army. You just go out and do it. Like Superman doesn't need an army. Green Lantern doesn't need an army. You know, Superman isn't going to be stopped by a castle. So if that's the power level you're achieving, which is approximately what you get, as you say, it's Medieval Justice League, then all those things no longer make sense. And it should really be superhero combat is what the warfare should look like. So uh, so in Axe, the characters become very powerful, but they become very powerful in the levels that you see in Conan or Aragorn or King Arthur, you know, people like that. They don't become very powerful in the way that you see them in, um, you know, uh, comic books. 
Now, we, we've talked a lot about kind of this building of strongholds. Uh, so I just have to ask, have you ever played Pendragon from uh, Chaosium? I haven't ever played it. I have it. It's a really impressive game. Um, you know, I think it's uh, the, the great Pendragon campaign is one of the you know greatest products that's been created for our industry. And um, they really, really were putting the effort in to create that, that full sweeping scope. Uh, slightly different approach. You know, they had some more narrative elements uh, with the virtues and things like that. But yeah, it's a really great game. And to to let people in who again haven't necessarily uh, picked up this product, the the focal point of a Pendragon campaign is you are playing through like an Arthurian lineage. Mm -hmm. So you you're basically starting with someone's uh, great great grandfather and and moving on down the lineage and all the kind of noble deeds that were performed by this family and that's what a campaign of Pendragon is like it's it's very uh, it's very focused on specifically the Arthurian canon and that's where it derives its fantasy from so anyone who I don't know is a fan of T.H. White or really wants to kind of explore what I would consider like the the kind of paleolithic era of medieval fantasy. That's a good place to to do that is the game Pendragon. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um it's interesting because it starts the you know the great Pendragon campaign starts you at uh you know before Arthur under the reign of Uther and it then, you know, brings you forward over the generations. And I love how they have the technology change so that um, it starts off with Dark Ages technology, but they kind of do this accelerated technology curve so that by the time you get to King Arthur, everybody's in full plate, you know, shining knights in full plate. Um, and then you descend back into a Dark Age again. And it's, um, you know, it's an, it, and every campaign is inherently tragic, right? Because Arthur yeah. always dies and, you know, Excalibur always gets tossed into the sea, et cetera. Yeah, and that's that. I I've been thinking a lot about King Arthur because I've been thinking about incorporating the Arthurian canon into a into a superhero universe. There's a whole rabbit hole that I could go down if I explained it any more than that. Just because mm. I have a weird brain and have created something very strange that's still being created right now, but know that feeling the the arthurian canon is it's so interesting how we get from that to kind of the modern conception of fantasy and how you know that that really serves as the starting point of right. fantasy storytelling it's it's something that i feel like anyone who's into this particular genre needs to go back and examine at some point I think that's right. And one of the one of the problems I think we have is that a lot of times we're reading what I would call photocopies of photocopies of photocopies of photocopies, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, when Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, he was basing Lord of the Rings on authentic mythology that he had studied as a philologist. And so there's this resonance, this mythic resonance in the world that feels so authentic. Um, but then, you know, you have writers that are 
writing pastiches of Lord of the Rings, and then people who are writing like sort of like sort of Shannara, for instance, right? And then you have writers that are writing pastiches of that, and on and on. And so that that distance from from the real food, you know, the the organic vegetables of fantasy has been has been lost, and um, we need to get back to it. I think. It's it's one of the reasons why I emphasize so much and why I talk so much about reading the Appendix N books. Yeah. Those, to an extent, they're also photocopies of photocopies, but there's a whole different side of fantasy that I think a lot of people have forgotten about because of how popular, and again, deservedly so, Tolkien was. A lot of people mm-hmm. forget what sword and sorcery of you know liber and and uh howard and uh clark ashton smith and and all those guys what that was like versus what fantasy has become and i think people who get burnt out on fantasy should do themselves a favor if they want to rediscover a love of fantasy go explore that stuff Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I went on a kick and read all of uh, all of Appendix N. And some of it I loved and some of it I hated, but it was all new to me. You know, I was amazed at how much great fiction had been written that I just had never read. And it was interesting as you're going through it, you're like, oh, this is where Dungeons and Dragons got this. This is literally right out of this book. This is right out of this book. And there's one author on that list, though, that I really love and thought is still underappreciated. It's Poole Anderson. Mm-hmm. The Broken Sword, The High Crusade, Three Hearts and Three Lines. So good. So, uh, like, anyone who hasn't read him should immediately stop what they're doing and go read Poole Anderson. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The, uh, Vintage RPG has done two episodes on uh, his his books. One was Three Hearts, Three Lions, and the other one was Broken Sword. So good. So good. Yeah, and it's... Um, to To kind of, like... Warn is too strong a word, but to let people know what you're getting into, uh, Three Hearts, Three Lions has a very weird hook to initially start Mm -hmm. things off because it's told from the perspective of a soldier in the Second World War, I believe. That's right. Who gets, basically has a head injury and wakes up in a fantasy world. Right. So there's... The, the fantasy of that era, and you, anyone who's read Narnia uh, has had the same experience. A lot of the fantasy of that particular era was outsiders from the modern world entering into a fantasy world. And that was how they kind of framed the discovery of the fantasy world. And so if you're not used to that kind of storytelling, it can be a little bit jarring, but it's definitely worth it to you know see that perspective. Yeah, that was a really common trope back then, right? Because you had that with Edgar Rice Burroughs and the Princess on Mars series. You had that in uh, Narnia. Um, it's a, I guess nowadays what the modern equivalent is the isekai stories that are being written in the, the light novels and manga. Right? That's, kind of, that's kind of our equivalent with a, like a video game trope uh, sort of overlaid on top they didn't have. But... I, you know, I think the reason those stories work so well is that it solves a really big problem for the writer of how do you expose the world if the character already knows about the world, right? Like, as I walk around my day, I'm not thinking about American history 
and explaining what a refrigerator is in my head, right? I just know what these things are. Yeah. Like if you're in a fantasy world and the reader knows nothing about what's going on, you have to explain it somehow. It's so much easier to do it if the character is an outsider and you can be like, this is a refrigerator. Whereas if, you know, you couldn't do Lord of the Wings from Gandalf's point of view, you'd have no idea what was going on. Gandalf would just be like, oh, well, this, 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 this. And you didn't, you know. The only person I know who writes like that is the guy who does, um, oh, gosh, uh, R. Scott Baker. Mm-hmm. He, he, R. Scott Baker just is like, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to, you know, drown you in a fire hose of, of, exp- of uh, not knowing what's going on. Good luck. I feel like William Gibson does that as well. Yes, yes, he does. Like a wall of sound almost, right, mm. as you die. Yeah, yeah, he does. Because I, my, my nerd card may be confiscated by saying this, but I've read Neuromancer once, and when I read it, I went, what the hell am I reading? Yeah, yeah, you really need to read it three or four times to actually understand all of the plot nuances. So there's like entire sections that don't make sense until you've read the whole book, and you're like, oh, that's, uh, ah. yeah. Mm. yeah. And I, you know, is it worth rereading nowadays? I don't know. But at the time, when I was young, I read it three times, I think. Hmm. I was a yeah, huge it's... Cyberpunk fan for a long time, so I ran Cyberpunk 2020 for years. Mm-hmm. That That's an interesting campaign idea. I've not run any Cyberpunk games, but th- something about running a Cyberpunk game in uh, 2022... It's the problem. But what I'm thinking to to make it like even more kind of ridiculous, run it like from the perspective of someone in 1987 saying like, okay, this is cyberpunk 1999. Right, right. This is the far flung future world of 2004. Yep, yep. And so Uh, if if I could get everyone to buy into that headspace with me and just be like, we're going to pretend like we don't know what happened in 2004 2004 was not the george w bush administration it was this weird uh techno futuristic cyberpunk dystopia and we're just gonna run with that yeah the future's been really disappointing i remember when i was a kid and 2020 seemed like it was a long way away and what was the future going to be like you know no flying car no cybernetic limbs i mean we got kickstarter and online porn and cell phones and i guess that's pretty cool (laughs) you know Overall, kind of a disappointment, you know, no black monolith in 2001 that evolved us to a higher species. <laughs> a, a friend of yours and someone who I greatly admire, Chuck Dixon, actually talked about this uh, a couple months ago. He did, in, in part of his What You're Reading section, he talked about reading a book that was basically explaining why you don't have a flying car, mm-hmm. why you don't have the like the Jetsons future that you were essentially promised. And what it came down to was the technology is there, but all of the interest and funding and everything has gone into essentially telecommunications technology. So everything else, the legislative incentive has not been there for people the uh the funding has not been there it there's a whole lot of kind of essentially bureaucratic red tape that's gone into preventing these things from happening yeah yeah i believe do you remember the name of the book 
I can't. And and it's it's bugging me right now because I've wanted to read it, but I can't remember the name of the book. Yeah, it sounds like a good book. And I would I would agree with that assessment. Um, it's actually apart from, you know, mobile technology, telecommunications, you know, there, in some ways it does feel like there's been even a technological regression, right? Like, you know, my father in the 80s used to be able to fly supersonic speeds from, you know, New York to London on the Concorde. No one on the planet can fly supersonic passenger jets anymore. There just aren't any running. You're like, wow, we, we used to be able to do that. Now we don't. What happened? So, you know. If the dwarves were in charge, it wouldn't have happened, <laughs> oh, yeah. is all I'm going to say. If the dwarves were in charge, we would still have the Concorde. Mm-hmm. The Concorde might be running, like, underground, but some kind of version of the Concorde would exist. That's right. That's right. It would be an underground, it would be a huge tunnel underneath the entire Atlantic Ocean that travels at maximum speed. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need, more, we need more dwarves. We're bringing them back. Mm-hmm. Now, one question that I have to ask you about dwarves now that we're, we're back on the subject of dwarves after quite a massive <laughs> digression there. Um, again, as, as someone who cares a lot about political science, I, I'm curious about how you formulated what a dwarven society would look like and, and a dwarven authority structure. What, uh, yeah, yeah. How, how do dwarven politics work in, in your thoughts? Well, the first thing, the first major difference is the lifespans. So as I said, the dwarves live a lot longer than humans, but they age like humans. And so you, it's a society of the old. Uh, the second major change is that for every two dwarven men, there's only one dwarven women born. It's a two to one sex ratio. So the women are very rare relative to the men. And that changes the dynamic of society. So you have, in some places, you have the three, you know, the three-parent home becomes a common thing. In other places, you have, um, you know, bride prices. You have competition for for spouses, all sorts of things like that. Um, and then the um, uh, and then the third major change is that um, the dwarven women can only breed very slowly. They can only have about one child every ten years, and so there's this severe demographic challenge for the race. And um, I built on that, and I iterated through a number of different um, social steps as they progressed from monogamy to arranged marriages, et cetera. And over time, what I saw was that the society would become a very traditionally bound caste society. So the dwarves are divided into four castes. There's a work-born, a craft-born, a high-born caste, and then there's an oath-sworn caste, which is the fourth caste. So the work-born do the mining, they do the farming, the mushroom farming, the droving. The craftborn are all your smiths and carpenters and masons. Uh, the highborn are your lords and warriors. And the oath sworn is a cast for all of the unmarried uh, bachelors who can't get women or are younger sons or are otherwise don't have a lot of prospects in their main cast. And so they can join. And those become the vault guards or the delvers who explore, uh, the soldiers who fight orcs, trolls, etc. And so it, it, similar to how the priesthood worked in the Middle Ages for um, uh, unmarried uh, young men who had no prospects. And um, so then the highborn rules uh, as the leader, um, but he has is subject to an elder moot of the elders of the craftborn um, clan heads. And so there's like sort of a senatorial system as well as a, a lord system. And then, uh, then overlaying that, so sort of almost like horizontal to the vertical, is a clan system where the dwarves are also loyal directly through clans to various family members. 
And um, and so as the as the High Lord, you have to manage different ambitions of different castes, different guilds within the caste, different um, uh, uh, clan affiliations. And so it becomes this very sort of hyper complex um, feudal guild system um, that is really hard to get rid of and reform because the lifespans are so long and the traditions are so entrenched. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, 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 it's a, and I go into like the legal system, uh, the voting system, everything in the book. It's, 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 if you're into political science, it's a good time because I, I, I got to really think what an alien but sort of human-like civilization would be. You have to imagine with dwarves being, uh, like you said, unable to kind of breed at a rapid rate with, you know, kind of long gestation periods of children and a very low percentage of females uh, that would naturally tend towards a closed off society that would seek to kind of, you know, maintain what they have rather than uh, integrating with kind of other societies, because if they were to do that, their way of life would basically go away uh, in a very short amount of time. That's right. So they're very, they're clannish, you know, inward looking. They're not, they're not a conquering people. There are people on the defense and they're, and they're basically facing the prospect of these, ceaseless hordes of orcs and goblins and trolls who breed much more rapidly than them and constantly are aggressive against them in the mountains. So that's actually why in the, um, in the book, that's why the dwarves have a steampunk component because they're the only species on the planet that's actually under enough demographic pressure to have a semi-industrial revolution. Because for them, if you can put together you know, an automaton that can go fight for you, and sure, it was expensive, but if it saves the life of three dwarves, that's worth it, right? So they have a much more, they have an attitude more like, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of more modern day in the sense that the life is is expensive and dear, and they'd rather use technology where possible. Um, although I, I also have a second group of dwarves that are these um, traditionalists who feel that, you know, the, the need to rely on automatons is because of a weakness of the dwarven spirit. And so they they instead are furious and go berserk in battle and wade in naked and you know long for combat kind of thing. Those are more the northern dwarves. As I said, I have two cultures for people who like different types of dwarves. Mm-hmm. The uh, the Amish berserkers of the uh, the dwarven world. Yes, yes, they are they are Amish berserkers. They have beards, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. Yes, and black. Amish no, berserkers seems like it would be a good name for. If Amish core were even a possibility as far as like a metal genre goes, Amish berserkers seems like they would be the foremost band in in that. Amish berserkers absolutely sounds like the beginning of the Amish core heavy metal genre. I think you're right. It'd be it's sort of like it would be combining like death metal with Christian metal. I I feel like there'd also have to be just again because of the the way that Amish culture is. in in like where they've decided, you know, no further technology than this, it would almost have to incorporate like folk metal. So it would almost be like the music Richie Blackmore and his current wife are making mixed uh, with yeah. whatever death metal. Yeah. And listen, can we add Mongolian throat singing? Somehow I feel like we should. I just I feel like we need more of that. Yeah. yeah. It's more throat singing. Mm-hmm. And and to answer Luau Lu's question in chat here, I have heard of Hayseed Dixie. Um, I I'm very familiar with all kinds of uh, 
bluegrass and and country related uh, novelty bands. That's very much a headspace that I've lived in for most of my life. Oh wow! Well, you're you're much more musically astute than me. I think most of my musical taste just comes from gaming. You know, in gaming Discord, people are like you should listen to Sabaton, right? Like every gamer listens to Sabaton. Mm-hmm. So, but get out of those narrow genres. I'm useless. I need to find those gamers who are listening to Sabaton because all the gamers I know are like chip tunes. I'm just like I don't I don't like that. Oh uh, yeah, that's a different that's a different crowd of gamers. I guess there's so many gamers now. We have multiple cultures. Yeah, yeah. It's not like the good old days when that we were small in number and picked on like prey animals on the Serengeti. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's different now. Yeah, that's again that that's a, an interesting thing to think about. Because um, I've noticed this, and I think a lot of people are starting to notice this as geek culture and gaming culture has become mainstream it doesn't feel like it has the same bite that it used to. It doesn't feel like it has the same poignance that a, a lot of things in, in this particular genre used to. And I know um, I, I, I don't want to come off like a, a, a hipster or anything like, or the, the meme version of a hipster. But as one of my favorite authors, Michael Malice, has said, culture's made at the fringe. And yeah. we're finding ourselves in a, a point where we're not the fringe anymore. So it, it's interesting to see how some creators are now heading for that fringe again and saying we need to find kind of that, that famine mentality that we've lost to recreate the uh, creativeness that we used to have. Uh, listen, I'm way out on the fringe. A lot of famine happening here. Like, you can, look at these, look at these cheekbones. Um, yeah, uh, I agree with you though. It it was a really different experience. Um, you know, I remember, uh, you know, as a kid, like you would you would see some of the books, and they, you know, they were so salacious uh, to me at the time. Like, you know, some of the covers of like Eldritch Wizardry with the, you know, the the half naked woman sprawled on the sacrificial altar. And, um, you know, you could really believe it was something very mysterious and esoteric. And, um, you know, and some of our friends weren't allowed to play role-playing games because they were possibly evil and it might, you know, cause them to be cursed. And, um, you know, and now it's, now it's something you watch other people do on Twitch. It's, you know, it's the opposite of mysterious and edgy. It's, um, you know, it's a lighthearted amusement for the masses. So, um, you know, but my games are not, you know, my games are 450 page poems for the powerful of mind. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah, I remember. You should buy them anyway if you're in the masses. <laughs> Just, you know, give I've... you a powerful mind. I absolutely agree with that. You should buy Alex's books. They're they're amazing. But I, I remember when I was first getting into role playing games, this was just like a moment before they became super popular. I was I was learning about role playing games before Roll20 took off right. or not Roll20, right. uh Critical Role. Before Roll20 took off too, but before Critical Role, before the first season of Stranger Things, I was really exploring gaming for the first time. And I remember Dungeon Master having so much mystique to it. I thought I mm-hmm. could never in a million years be a dungeon master there's so much 
knowledge and power that you have to have to, you know, take on this mantle of being a dungeon master. And now I'm just telling people, I'm like, you can DM right now. I don't care if you've never read a book, you know, you the mystique no. of, of being a dungeon master is gone. And I wonder if we can bring that back a little bit. Yeah, I think it'll be hard to bring it yeah. back. But, you know, things change. Um, and uh, I'm sure it'll be interesting developments to come of all the new people that have been brought in. You know, they won't they won't endlessly keep playing 5th edition. They'll either move on to other games or they'll drop out of the hobby or they'll, you know, start to design their own 6th edition that appeals to them more or whatnot. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, and who knows where things are going to go as technology advances, right, with augmented reality and things like that. That's all sorts of interesting um, stuff. The, the other day I played at my friend's house. I have a friend who's a former video game developer and, you know, did really well and exited. And so now he's got like this this game room he's got built out. And the game table is actually a massive um, high definition television. And so we were playing this game where we were pirates, you know, on the open ocean. And so lo and behold, like the television is the ocean and there's just waves cresting and, you know, fish visible in the water and then our, our miniatures of our boats and characters were on top of that and it was it was really impressive it's like wow um that's the kind of thing you, you know never could have imagined having 20 years ago and, and you know now that's just how we play every week it's it's kind of wild so. mm -hmm. absolutely yeah i mean that's one thing that really kind of excites me about the future of gaming i know a lot of people have uh, you know, concerns or questions about where things might be going, especially I firmly believe that the the boom we're seeing in role or that we've seen in role playing games is coming to an end very soon within the next. I'd say within the next 10 years, maybe even the next five as mm -hmm. the superhero craze falls off, which we're already starting to see. And as really as stranger things is about to wrap up i think a lot of the stuff that came about at the same time is going to kind of fade away in popularity but one thing that i that really gives me hope is the the way that people have advanced gaming technology so much and all the different crazy weird and cool things you can now do with a role-playing game I think mm -hmm. that's really going to keep this hobby alive. Yeah, the virtual tabletops, for instance, have really made a big difference for letting people game. Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be so hard to get a group together of adults. Everybody was spread out, moving around for work. Now you just, hey, everybody, let's get on Roll20 or The Forge or whatever. Yeah, that's been uh, that's been really nice. Um, I've had to make the leap into virtual tabletop during the COVID pandemic because, you know, our, we, we used to have a group that met every week in person and nobody could meet, so we switched to playing online. You know, it's a different vibe, and it's not that it's better or worse. It's just different. you got to adjust to it. So. Hmm. Although I'll go on record as saying I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> I, I like gaming in person. You know, well, definitely after the COVID experience of being so isolated, I really found I was so happy to see my friends again. Um, but at the same time, like, I have a group I play with on virtual tabletop, and I love those guys, and, you know, we have a great time. And, um, you know, it's it's... But it's just different. It's it's yeah. um you know you have to you have to work a little harder at it I think, whereas in person there's a spontaneity and a personal chemistry that can kind of carry you forward, whereas virtual tabletop can feel a little bit more like work for me as a dungeon master I think. Absolutely. 
And then if you're streaming it, um, that's another layer of work as well. Right. I haven't progressed to that. Um, I, I, I keep thinking about it like, hey, I should do a stream or something because it's a good way to sort of promote yourself and build your brand. But I just um, haven't, uh, haven't, ever, haven't ever taken the plunge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... I, I, we do streaming here on, on Valor Studios and Tony, our, uh, our owner, talks about this a lot. When you are streaming an RPG, you're playing an RPG, but more than anything else, you're basically running a TV show. Yeah. And yeah. so you, you have to not only focus on, uh, you know, is this game going smoothly or, you know, is everything going according to the rules? But more importantly, are we doing something that's currently entertaining someone? Mm-hmm. And so a yep. lot of the... A lot of the stuff that comes along with just role playing uh, for fun has to go out the window like the again. I harp on this a lot because it's my least favorite thing about role playing games, the let's sit here and contemplate all the different possibilities while I flip through my endless list of spells to figure out what I can do. And what's supposed to be six seconds of combat, right? Yeah. I don't I don't really enjoy that either in combat. I don't mind it when it's out of combat, like if the players are like, let's call a, let's call a meeting of the war council and discuss our battle plans. And it's like, you know, the battle is supposed to be in a week. And, you know, if they want to take some time and spend a session planning a battle, I don't mind that. But it certainly wouldn't be fun to watch in a stream like, you know, people would gouge their eyes out with boredom. Um, and, you know, the same thing is true if you watch a war movie, right? Like, obviously, before the battle, the general staff had, you know, six weeks of working on logistics to figure out how to fuel the tanks, but nobody wants to hear about that shit. So, you know, don't do it. No, don't stream it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I have rules for it. Yeah. It's, it's important to allow players who want to strategize and plan and stuff like that to do that, but to do so in a way that's not disruptive to the player who just wants to cut something in half. Yep. Yep. And also, it's also really frustrating is you have some players, like, when their turn comes up, they know what they're going to do because they've been paying close attention and they've watched everyone else's move and they've been thinking about what they're going to do. And so their turn, and it just runs like a well-oiled machine. And then you always get Bob, who spends everyone else's turn, and he's just looking at his phone. And then he's like, oh, what happened, guys? Oh, oh, my gosh, how did my figure get over here? What? Um, oh, uh, how many bonus actions do I have? You know? You're just like, Jesus, Bob, you know, maybe put Twitter down for 30 seconds and interact with your friends who are in the same room with you. That that is my pet peeve. I will I will reach across the table and strangle a bitch for that. Absolutely. Of course, metaphorically, metaphorically. I've had the impulse to literally do it a couple times, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, I mean, no, it's 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 honestly as a dungeon master, like it's disrespectful, right? Mm -hmm. You're. You know, but it, uh, it is what it is. That's our phone culture uh, these days. Mm-hmm. Everybody's addicted. Absolutely. Now for uh, a- another hard transition here, one thing I definitely want to talk about while you're on here uh, before we before we go home here. Um, in addition to Ascendant, the RPG, which we talked about so many times, I will hold up this, again, amazing book here. For everyone to see this great Jay Shields cover. Uh, in addition to the RPG, you also have a comic book, Ascendant Star Spangled Squadron. 
uh, right. which people can can get on Indiegogo. So tell us a little bit about you know what's available there, what people can can purchase, and uh, you know all that good totally. stuff. So Ascendant Star Spangled Squadron is a 96-page graphic novel. It's the origin story of the Ascendant universe. You get to meet the very first superheroes and supervillains that ever come to exist in the world and how they first come into conflict and how the Coast Guard becomes the epicenter of superheroics in America. It's hilarious in its own way. Um, right now on Indiegogo, uh, we're in the in-demand period, so you can purchase any of the uh, products that we have been kickstarting. So there's four different cover options available, um, plus there's two premium covers. There's a manga-style cover with a black-and-white reversed interior. There's a foil cover um, with a, comes with a special foil trading card. There's also trading cards you can buy, lots of cool swag. So, um, you know, if you want to, if you want to dive into the, to the Ascendant universe and you're not a gamer who's into playing superhero RPGs, but you really like story and narrative, it's a, it's, it's great. It's great stuff. The comic book itself is done and it's, uh, it's at the printers now. So we're going to be shipping out as soon as um, they reach the U.S. And I, I am eternally envious of you that when you were putting this thing together, you reached out to Chuck Dixon and got his advice on scripts because, um, like I already said, I, I'm an admirer of Chuck Dixon's work. I've got a bunch of stuff that he signed over here that he uh, sent me. I've got a Levon Cade novel that he signed. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was introduced to Chuck Dixon when he started working on the alt-hero storylines. He was doing All Hero Avalon City, which is now on the Arctunes website. And that was how I that was how I met Chuck, and so um, he sent me some of the very first comic book scripts I ever got to read to to sort of see how it was done. So very he was very generous with his time, a good guy, you know, and obviously a you know grandmaster of his craft, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, he's it's always funny on Facebook. He just casually will name drop all of these characters that he created, and you're like, what? You made him too? It's mm -hmm. just like you know. Basically, basically, Chuck Dixon created everybody. Yep. And again, for anyone out there unfamiliar with the name, have you heard of Bane? Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> like, you know, uh, the greatest the greatest movie of the 21st century, Bane. <laughs> you guys have seen that whole that whole meme, right? The Bane, yep. the, Bane the Bane meme, yeah. Anyway. But yeah, that's again, you know, just it, it's great to be able to connect with people like that who are masters who are able to you know help you understand starting out in in something as unusual as a form of storytelling as, as comic books can be uh, especially yeah. when it comes to the scripting process yeah so i ended up finding it very natural and i think it was because of years of running role-playing games because in comics you're narrating in comic scripts, that is, you're narrating to the artist what is in your mind's eye that they then need to draw, which is really similar to what you do as a dungeon master when you're narrating the dungeon room or the wilderness environment that the players need to see in their mind's eye. And so um, I think that made it, I, I think it was a case where there was like an overlapping skill set that made it easier for me to get into. Because um, I've talked to some other writers that have come from traditional novels and they've had a really tough time wrapping their head around um, uh, comic book writing. Whereas I have a much harder time wrapping my head around novel writing because I'm not used to being in the heads of the characters the way novels are. Novels are all about being in the heads of the characters and that's not where I normally am. I'm thinking about the world in motion around them. So comics for me was a, was a very easy jump. Novels, have, you know, I've got like two novels in creation and 
both of them have kind of halted at 20,000 words in frustration, whereas my comic book's just... Interesting. Gotcha. Have you, have you written a comic book script yet? I have been... I've been trying to. Yeah. I've I've given it a lot of thought. I have Denny O'Neill's book on writing comics. Yeah. Um, and and I've read it a couple times. I love the the process. I I think it's something that will be worthwhile. My only the the thing that continuously trips me up is I start thinking way too far ahead like who's actually going to draw this and who's going to make this thing look the way I want it to look, because God knows I can't right. do it. Right. Uh, and so I, I'm always like, you know, who, who's actually going to be able to draw this thing? Am I going to be able to afford whoever can make this look the way I want it to look? And then yeah. I'm just like, ah, uh-huh. it's, it's pointless. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely expensive, right? And that's a big mm-hmm. difference between writing a novel and writing a comic, is you can, you know, if you're not the writer-artist, it's really tough to do it on your own. Um, so... You know, if you ever get there, I know a great uh, art agency called Glasshouse Graphics that, um, you know, has a really talented team that can do almost any type of art style you want for a comic, so. Gotcha. That's who we, gotcha. Used. That's who we used for Ascendant and Ascendant Star Spangled Squadron. And they just did that big Ripperverse comic. They were the artist team for that as well. Nice. Yeah. Isom. I love it. Isom. Yeah, that's it. I love it. I love Eric July. You know, I hadn't encountered him until all of a sudden he was literally everywhere on my Twitter. I was like, oh, interesting. Well, good on you, bro. Yeah. Um, as we've talked about before, I, I'm a I'm a Rothbardian anarchist and he runs in those same circles. So that's that's how I originally encountered Eric July was, yeah. was anarchists. But he has a being libertarian website, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so as we're kind of closing things out tonight, um, just to, you know, give people uh, kind of a snap back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, where are we as far as the uh, campaign for Buy This Axe goes? Uh, what can people look forward to as far as the, you know, the stretch goals that are coming up? Um, and, you know, just tell us a little bit about the campaign. Yeah, so the campaign goal was 10,000. We blew past that. We're at uh, standing at about 40,000 uh, right now. Um, when we hit 40,000, that'll unlock a stretch goal uh, for a new character class. And then there's another stretch goal at 45,000. You know, we've got 48 hours left. Sometimes you get a big, uh, a big flurry in the last two days. So if we do, we'll add another character class to the book, the Dwarven Redder. Um, this is, uh, we've just added the Dwarven Spore Color. So, uh, you know, I think we'll end up somewhere between 40 and 45K. I would love to see it hit 45 and do that uh, extra character class. But, um, you know, even if we even if we stopped right now, it would be a 400% over uh, over goal crowdfund. So got to feel good about that. Book itself is written. Um, so uh, we just need to get it laid out, get the art in there. That takes some time. But um, I'm going to have a, uh, you know, I'll have an art-free PDF for everybody really quickly that they can uh, they can check out and start playing around with. So it won't be a long wait for folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you guys will see the link there in chat. Uh, looks like Gregory just put it in there for us. And uh, those of you watching on YouTube, uh, you'll have the uh, the link to the campaign in the description. Same with those of you who are listening on audio. 
Cool. Awesome. And sorry, what was that? I said awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. Just Absolutely. being supportive of promoing my book. And uh, just as we're kind of wrapping up here, uh, all the other places where people can find you, uh, you know, in, anywhere that they can support your work, uh, just, you know, kind of let people know where you are. Yeah, so I'm on Patreon uh, at Ascendant Comics and Patreon at Autark. Uh, the former is for my comic book work. The latter is for my role-playing game work. Um, I'm on Twitter as Archon. And, uh, and then I have a Discord server, uh, which you can get, um, you know, from our website or uh, from Twitter or whatever, where we have our community of folks that chat about the game and keep things lively. So pretty easy to get online. Just Google me. I can provide links, whatever. I don't know. Put it on Reddit, whatever the cool kids do these days. Start a TikTok. Oh, let's, let's keep away from Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll send you to my thread on 4chan where I discuss the <laughs> Large Hadron Collider and how it's changing <laughs> our timelines. Um... Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, guys, that's going to do it for tonight's episode. Uh, Alex, thank you again for coming on. It's always not just one, but several interesting conversations while you're on the show, so we'll, we'll definitely have to do this again next time you've got a campaign. Uh, but yeah, I mean, th this was a ton of fun. Awesome. We, we were all over the map, but uh, hopefully folks who came for the dwarves still stuck around for the superheroes and the other diversions. So, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, guys, uh, just to let you know what's coming up next week, uh, appropriately enough, this is the guy who is the the reason why I got connected with Alex and originally had him on the show. Uh, but everyone grab your, your mugs of ale, your drinks of choice, because the bartender of the OSR, Eric Tankar, is coming back next week. Uh, he and I have a lot to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what's gone down with uh, the the Satine Phoenix and uh, Jameson Stone drama. We're going to talk about celebrity culture in gaming and uh, just a lot of stuff like that. It, w hopefully we're not going to just be bogged down in, in negative stuff. I hope there's some positive that can come out of that conversation, but we're going to be talking about all kinds of craziness uh, and how the gaming world has changed and some of the fallout of that change uh, that we're seeing now. So if you want to hear a little bit about that, definitely tune in next week. It'll be an interesting conversation. And Eric Tankar is just a great dude. He's always fun to talk to. So, you know, definitely uh, swing on by next week to see that. But until then, guys, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. And whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and with us here at Valor Studios. I'll see you guys next time.